1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. Now we are making our way through question 98. Um, in our shorter catechism. And I'm just going to read that to you one more time as we start. Uh, Prayer, question 98, what is prayer? Prayer, answer, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. You know, sometimes I, I don't know, sometimes I don't feel like I have the gift of not going through these things phrase by phrase. <laughs> I find myself preaching a sermon over this one phrase, with confession of our sins. But uh, we each have our own gifts. So we're going to look at that tonight. Uh, in our previous study, we saw that God must initiate prayer in us. Because if God didn't initiate prayer in us, we would never ever seek Him in prayer because we don't seek God. We don't, Luke 11, we don't say with the disciples, Lord, would you teach us to pray apart from God working in our lives. So how does God do this? How does God initiate prayer in us? And I do love, I do love this thing. I'm glad that I have Dave Bletcher in my life, Dr. Bletcher, mathematician, He called Romans 5 the suffering algorithm, and I want to call this the prayer algorithm because this is where we learn how people come to call on the name of the Lord. He says in Romans 10, 14, Paul says, How can anyone call or pray to Him or believe in Him in whom they have not believed? How can you call on Him in whom you have not believed? How can you do that? You can't call on anybody in whom you have not believed. And so he says you can't believe on him unless you have a what? A preacher. So now we're working backwards step by step. You can't call unless you believe. You can't believe unless you have a preacher. You can't have a preacher unless you have a church sending the preacher out to preach. And so you can't hear the gospel. Faith comes by hearing. You can't hear it apart from a church sending men out to preach the gospel. So faith comes by hearing this guy preach the gospel, and then when that guy preaches the gospel, faith comes by hearing, and there's believing in the heart, and there's men and women who call on the name of the Lord, there's prayer, prayer for the first time. So there's your algorithm. It all starts when faith is born in the heart through hearing the word preached. So there it is. Now, if you want one more verse to back that up, in James 1.18, it says, In the exercise of His will, in the exercise of God's will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. There it is again. There's James saying the same thing. We are born by the Spirit 
And by the water, if you will, using John 3, we are born by the word of the truth as God brings us into life, if you will. When babies are born, they begin to cry. And we, when we are born again, we begin to call on the name of the Lord. So initiating prayer in us, God does this. And then God involves us in the kingdom by means of prayer. And we see in our definition here that we are to offer up our desires to God for things agreeable to His will. Now, one of the things we did earlier is we went and we showed where men began to pray according to God's will. And we looked at uh, David. And David was told by the prophet Nathan that God was going to give him a kingdom, a dynasty. And so David went and he began to pray. And this is what he said, Do what you have said. And then God told Elijah, He told Elijah to go tell King Ahab to go eat and get on his chariot and ride into Jezreel because it's going to rain. And then Elijah strange as, as it can be, he goes up to the top of Mount Carmel, and I wish I could do this. I can't do this. I used to be able to do this, but I used to be able to squat and touch my bottom to the ground. Right now, I'm too stiff. But he squatted down, and he had his head between his knees, so he was pretty flexible. And he's at the top of the mountain, and he's praying for it to rain when he knows it's going to rain. And Calvin teaches us that he was not being indolent, he was not being a person whose brain was inactive, but he was praying for the thing that God told him was going to happen. So we know what's going to happen, and yet we go and pray for it as well. So we are called to not just know God's providence, but to pray God's will. And so we learned that. And then we looked at a few things where we looked at the tensions that we face as human beings with finite wills as we are up against God's infinite will. And tonight we want to look at with confession of our sins. Now, so number one, prayer includes our confession of sins. And everybody knows 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you and I, we are to confess our sins. Well, there's two, two questions we need to ask first. What is sin and then what is confession? What is sin? Well, let's just be really simple. Sin is something that's not agreeable to God's will. How about that for an, a, a definition? We could give a lot of definitions. We know there's definitions in the catechism. But sin is that which does not agree with God's will. So you and I, we are to confess as sinned those things not agreeable to God's will. And we talked about some of this this morning. Um, things we're required to do that we don't do, that's called omission. If you're required to do something and you don't do it, you leave it out, that's omission. If you're prohibited from doing something and you go out and you walk across the line, that's called transgression or that's called commission. Now, I was, if, if Dumo had been here tonight, I was going to tell him this because I learned this from Al Martin. Al Martin gave an illustration about transgression. He said this, if you're out on the track and you're running track and you're on running down the track and you're running down there, you're supposed to stay in certain races in the lines. And if you step out of the line, that is to break the rules of track. That's a transgression. So we have things that we do. Now, young people, I'm looking at my, okay, Bella, got some young people here. If mom and dad say, I want you to brush your teeth and you do not brush your teeth, that's a sin of omission. 
you forgot, you left it out. If you go and your mom and dad told you not to put your hand in the candy you know, jar, and you went and did it when they weren't looking, that is a sin of commission. So we have omission when we forget to brush our teeth, and we have commission when we stick our hand in the cookie jar and we cross the line. These are the things we are to confess. 1 John 1, 8 says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 10 says, If we say we have not sinned, we make God to be a liar, and His word is not in us. So verse 9 tells us we need to confess our sins. And if we don't, if we say we have no sin, think about that. I don't have any sin. And by the way, I have not sinned. Well, what does the Bible say about this person? (laughs) Deception. Truth is not in you. You're calling God a liar because he tells us that sin is in us. And his word is not in us. Now, I've told our men a little bit about this man I trained. And you know, folks, when you train people for 10 years, you get to know them. You know them. You know more about them probably than some of their wives know about them. And you train women and you know probably things more than their husbands know about the women. You know these people. And so here's this man who comes to me and for seven years, he tells me, he says, Mark, I need to confess sin. But I don't know what to confess. I I don't know what to confess. And, And can you help me? I know I'm supposed to, but I don't know what to say. I don't know what, to, I don't know what sin is. And so I began, I'm going to tell you all three instances. I began with the children's catechism, and I said, sin is not being or doing what God requires. That's the simple illustra- uh, definition. And I said, transgression is doing what God forbids. And I talked to him at that point early on. And then as the months would go by, he would come to me again, and he would say, you know, I'm, I know that I'm supposed to confess my sin, but I don't know what sin is. Can you help me? And I went to the Sermon on the Mount. And I told him, I said, okay, think about sin like this. You and I, we're not supposed to kill anybody with our hands. Oh, yeah, I'm not, I haven't done that. I said, but you're not even supposed to be angry in your heart towards anybody. And you're not supposed to call anybody names. You're not to call them empty-headed fool. You're not to call anybody names. And I told him, I said, I told you, I remember telling him. I said, you know, one of the things I started doing is I stopped listening to some of the radio guys because they called people names. And I was enjoying with that with those guys on the radio. They were calling people names. And I, I told him, I said, that's wrong. And this just has no effect on him at all. And I told him it's not just committing the act of adultery, but it's in your heart lusting after things that you, you shouldn't lust after. Well, this had no effect either. And so as I remember the last time before we ended training together, he asked me one more time. And I went out, a lot of times with my clients, I would literally go to their cars and I would get them out of their cars. And this guy was 77 years old. So I got him out of the car and I got him in the gym, doing his workout, you know, doing all the stuff. And so he says, I'm struggling. I don't know what to pray as far as confessing my sin. I said, I said, R.G., I'll leave his name out. The way you talked to your wife when you got out of that car, that was sinful. 
What are you talking about? I said, you were unkind to her. You spoke to her in a way you should never have spoken to her. I mean, I'm doing everything I can to try to get this guy to see sin. He said, nope, don't see that as a sin. Never ever, I've always acted this way. Calling God a liar. Saying I have not, not sinned and there's no sin in me. This is to be deceived. This is to understand that only God can open up a sinner's heart. Now, if you look at 1 John 2, 1, it says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, that's why John's writing. The goal, the ideal is in this life is you and I. He writes that we may not sin. Now we come to the real, the real part of life. And if anyone sins, if anyone does sins, sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So you and I, we are striving not to sin. We are striving to live after the Word of God and for the will of God and to do everything agreeable to His will. But then we find in the real, in the real world, we find that we sin. And if we sin, we do have an advocate. And we're going to talk about Him in a minute. But our goal is not to sin. But when we do sin, what do we need to do? Well, we know what sin is now. What does it mean to confess sin? The word confess is this wonderful word, homologeo, which means to say the same thing as. To say the same thing as another person. To admit, to agree. Now, it's one thing, if somebody comes up to you and tries to tell you you've done something wrong and you know you haven't done it, then don't say you did it. But if you have done it something, if you've done something, if the Holy Spirit comes to you in the Word of God and shows you that you have sinned, you need to agree with God against yourself that you have sinned. That's what it means to confess. I am agreeing with God against myself that I have sinned in thought or word or in deed. Now, so many people... Think about it. Let me give you a few illustrations. So many people today are taking God's name in vain. Uh, you know, there's a song in the gym. <laughs> I think it was like six minutes long. You know what the three words in it were? Around the world. Six minutes of around the world. Around the world. Around the world. Around the world. And there's other songs that go for six or seven minutes, and they are OMG. All the time. Six minutes or seven minutes of OMG. And I'm going, does anybody in here understand that this is taking God's name in vain? And so here it is going on, going on. And all of a sudden, the word of God comes and says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who taketh his name in vain. And now all of a sudden we're up against a decision. Do I agree with God or do I say with Mr. R.G.? Nope. What, who do I agree with? You and I have a decision to make, and lo, God forbid, I, I trust that you're not taking God's name in vain, but don't do it. And if you are, agree with God against yourself and stop. Think another one. Here's another one. This is just for these folks. This is Sunday night crowd. This is, this is, this is for the Sunday night crowd. You're at work. You're at home, you're working, you're suffering. You're suffering for doing what is right. <laughs> Just hold on. Um, you're being harassed for doing the right thing. 
You've only been kind. You've only been diligent. You've only done what you're supposed to do. And you're taking it on the chin. And you're getting all kinds of headaches for doing the right thing. Then you find yourself complaining and grumbling. And God's word comes to you and says in 1 Peter 3, 17, It is better if God should will it so that you should suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. It's God's will for you to suffer for doing what is right. It's much better for you to suffer for doing what's right than for doing what's wrong. God's word tells you in Philippians 1.29, It has been granted to you not only to believe in Jesus Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. But you find yourself grumbling and complaining. Philippians chapter 2 verse 12 says, Do all things without... Isn't that a song? I will do all things without grumbling and complaining. Now you have a choice. You have a choice to make. Will you agree with God against yourself that you are grumbling and complaining? And will you ask God to help you not to grumble and complain? 1 Peter 4.16, But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. So instead of grumbling and complaining, replace it with glorifying God. In, in his name. James 1, 1 verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Those are the ways that we come combat grumbling and complaining. The prophet, let me give you a few illustrations of people who actually agreed with God against themselves. The king has broken many commandments, King David. He has broken the seventh commandment, thou shalt not kill. There's Uriah, he's dead. Thou shalt not commit adultery. He's committed adultery with Bathsheba, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. There's another one. And how many more can we name? And then the prophet comes up to him and sticks his bony finger into his chest and says, Thou art the man. Now he's got a decision to make. Will he agree with God or will he chop off the prophet's head? Because he had the right to do it. He's already killed one man on a battlefield. What will he do? I'm sure that prophet Nathan was just a little bit trembling. And he said, I've sinned against the Lord. In fact, if you go read Psalm 51, he doesn't say, I've sinned against Uriah, I've sinned against Bathsheba, all true, but he says, against thee and thee only, I've done what is evil in your sight. So he agreed with God against himself. In Isaiah 6, wonderful passage, we all love this passage. I, I used to read this passage all the time. And it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and we see all the wonderful things happening, all the angels and all the trembling, the building shaking, and also the prophet. He's also shaking. And he says, woe is me. He pronounces a curse on himself. He says, I'm, I'm ruined. I'm going to pieces. <laughs> I'm coming apart at the seams. Why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips. So in the holy presence of God, he agrees with God against himself, and he calls his sin a sin. Sin is whatever in my life that does not agree with God's will. And confession of sin is bringing it to God and agreeing with Him against myself. Will you say with David, I have sinned against the Lord? Will you say with Isaiah the prophet, I am a man of unclean lips? Will you say with the prodigal son, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight? Second, prayer includes confession of our sins with self-abandonment. So I see my sins, I confess my sins, and now I have to find no confidence in myself. I have to abandon myself. I have to abandon myself to God, and that's the last part. 
you and I, we can't find anything in ourselves to rely on. In Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, I have no more confidence in my flesh, no more confidence in my righteousness, no more confidence in myself. The prodigal son, he's taken all his inheritance. Remember, he got, I think he only got a third. The number one son, he gets two-thirds, and the second son gets a third. And he runs off and he squanders all of it. And he comes back and he's totally abandoning himself. This is what he says. He comes to his father and says, I no longer am worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Make me a slave. I don't have anything to recommend me. He is abandoning himself to the father. But think about the other son. We don't really think about the old other son, do we? The elder son. The other son, you know what he does? He recommends himself to his father. But both of these men need to be saved. The older brother, the elder brother looks at his father and he says, All these years I've been slaving for you and have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. You owe me. Here's this son, this immoral son, and he's going, I have nothing to recommend me. Here's the elder brother and he's going, I have a lot to recommend myself to you. But both of these guys need to be saved. And that's what Jesus is telling the, 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 the Pharisees, this parable, to teach them that they can't recommend themselves based on any of their good works. Immoral people and moral people both need to be saved. Both of them need to abandon themselves, all their good works, before God, and they need to trust only in Him. But it's so hard for us. I think I was talking to Evan uh, at the Black Rock at the coffee the other day. And he looked at me and he said, how are people, how are people who have so much, how do they ever come to God? Because they don't really need to rely on him at all. Why, if, if they can just go find it at the store and they have plenty of dough to get it, they never have to look to God. And the same thing's true when we look on the inside and we say with this elder brother, hey, I got plenty of righteousness. I got, I got plenty to throw around. And we have to be taught that our righteousness, there's nothing there to recommend us to God in that. It, when we humble ourselves, we stop saying, you owe me. And we start saying, I know what I deserve. And please, God, have mercy on me. We abandon ourselves. We abandon these things we think that we deserve to be uh, God to pay us for, and we trust in God alone. Well, that brings us to number three. Prayer includes confessing our sins with security in God alone. So I see my sins. They're out of kelter. They're out of agreement with God's will. I confess them to God. I agree with God against myself, and then I find my security in God alone. I think it needs to be said. When I abandon myself, I'm not throwing myself into a dark hole. I'm not throwing myself into a nothingness. I'm not hoping that I land on a solid rock out there somewhere. When I abandon myself, I'm casting myself into the secure hands of God who will hold me. And you say, but preacher, I need something that I can see. Because God's so invisible. 
I mean, remember we talked about, and we will get back to 1 Samuel, but we, I want to see somebody like Saul. He's head and shoulders above the rest. Show me something. Well, let me show you something. Remember the ideal, my little children, I write to you these things that you may not sin, but here's the real. If anyone sins, we have an advocate. Here's the thing you need to see in your heart and in your mind. You have an advocate with God the Father. One who speaks to God in your behalf, and it's Jesus Christ. So here we are, we're doing all we can not to sin. And we have security. That security is found in Jesus, this advocate. If you and I, if we go to court, we go get a lawyer. Have you seen people try to represent themselves in court? It doesn't look pretty. They don't know the ins and outs like lawyers do. They don't know the language like lawyers do. If you and I go into court and try to represent ourselves, we're going to stutter, we're going to stammer, we're going to lisp, we're not going to look too hot. That's why we go hire an advocate. And we have an advocate. This is what he tells us. We have an advocate. We have somebody who stands up in front of God for us. He's absolutely sin-free. He has blood, and he shows his blood to the Father, and he, it guarantees to the Father that this is the payment for your sin. There he is, not stuttering. There he is, knows exactly how to handle the judge, and the judge loves what he sees. He defends us in our place. He appears before God. Sometimes he's seated. Sometimes Jesus is seated as he's, as he's there before God, as your advocate. Sometimes he's standing. Now you go read tonight for your enjoyment. You go read Acts 7. And you go read Acts 6 and 7, and you'll see there's a man who's standing and he's proclaiming the truth about the temple and about God's Word. His name is Stephen. All those men hear what he's saying, and they put their hands over their ears, and they begin to cry out, You are guilty. We are going to stone you to death. And they begin to stone him to death. And he says, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of God standing at the right hand of God. While they say guilty, Jesus is standing up and saying, Not guilty. <laughs> sometimes he's seated. Sometimes he's standing. This is how it is with our sin. Your sins come against you. Satan comes against you and accuses you. And sometimes your own heart is crying out against you. And then when these things happen in this moment, you look away to your security. He is your advocate. You look away to Him. He's in your place speaking for you. His blood has made propitiation for your sins. His blood is the one that atones for your sins. And when I wrote a paper years ago, I never forgot these words. Jesus is a wrath-removing, wrath-averting sacrifice for your sins. They coming at Him, they don't hit you. Many times on Sunday mornings, what do we say? We like to use the words of the Book of Common Prayer, and we say things like this, We are miserable offenders. You know, today, I think those words have been removed in some churches. Oh, I'm not a miserable offender. I'm not a miserable offender. I'm kind of an offender. I'm a miserable offender. And then we say these words connected to it. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. Spare us. Restore us. According to your promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So these things go together. Confess our sins. I'm a miserable offender. 
and then we say, Lord, have mercy on us. We bring the promise of God before us. We say, wash me with hyssop and I will be clean. We say, Lord, with the, with the leper. Remember what the leper said? Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reaches out and says, I am willing. In this, back in those days, if you touched a leper, you would be unclean. Jesus touched him and he wasn't unclean. The man was made clean. And when Jesus does that to you, you're clean. You say, please forgive me. He cleanses you of your sins. Well, let's, let me conclude our sermon with confession of our sin. Um, our first priority has to do with our confession of sins. Our second priority has to do with the fruit of our confession of our sins. Our first priority has to do with reconciliation with God. Our second priority has to do with the benefits of the reconciliation with God. Let me explain from the parable or from the story of the paralytic. Y'all all remember the story. So what happens? Four guys bring their paralyzed friend and they bring him to the door. There's no way in. They can't get in. They can't get through the door. Well, they don't give up. They brainstorm. They get on top of the roof. They dig through the ceiling. I'm sure it was a mess, all this stuff going on. And they lower their friend down in front of Jesus. And what does he do? He says, rise, take up your pallet and go home. Is that what he said? No, first things first, Jesus says. First thing, reconcile with God. First thing, peace with God. He says, my son, your sins are forgiven. That's reconciliation with God. And I'm sure that these guys were pretty good guys. I'm sure that these four fellows were really spiritual. But don't you think that they would rather have heard, rise, take up your pallet, and go home first? I mean, I just think they would. But Jesus said first things first. Jesus has been preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven, repent for the forgiveness of sins. And he keeps first things first. And then in order to show all the people there that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, to prove what you can't see over here. Uh, hey, rise, take up your pallet and go home. I'm going to show you the benefits of what it means to be forgiven. Now, here's the question we have to think about. What would it have been like if this man had been raised up and walked out of there unforgiven? He would have had a great life. He would have had a wonderful life walking around and enjoying life, doing things like you and I are doing right now, maybe with some pain. And then he would have died, and he would have been separated from God. Jesus does first things first. First things first, reconciliation with God, forgiveness of sins. And then the second thing, are, as one young man told me a long time ago, is, then come the bennies. And I said, what? The what? I was too old to get it, I guess. The bennies? I said, yeah, yeah, you know, you get a job, and then you get your bennies, your benefits. You know, first the forgiveness of sins, then get the bennies. And you know what? If we don't walk around jumping up and down like the guy does in Acts chapter 3, we will in heaven, folks. We will in heaven. First, reconciliation with God. Second, the benefits of reconciliation. Oh, let us always remember with confession of our sins. Reconciliation with Jesus first. And then let us take out our shovels and let us dig out all the other promises that God promises to give us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to be in your word, to be with each one of these dear people, to sing, to praise, to begin our day 
and to end our day, end our day with you. And Father, we love you, we adore you, we ask that we might walk out of here tender about sin, that we might be tender with each other, Lord, that we might be lights in the world, not grumbling and complaining. We might be lights and salt in this world and lovers of others in this world as we go and do our business. Help us to do this in Jesus' name. Amen.